0: and blessing upon all these things we pray in jesus name amen thank you gary and again good morning everybody we're really glad you're here to be with us to worship in god's house and praise god that we've got the freedom that we can do that so it was in my second year uh, i was studying at west virginia tech And uh, the teacher walked into the room, this was a history class, the teacher walked in, he was wearing a brown coat, brown pants, a pair of brown shoes, and he introduced himself as Dr. Brown. (laughs) And Dr. Brown, he proceeded to ask the class a question. He said, if you believe that men are born basically good, you can keep your hand down. But if you don't believe that men were born basically good, I want you to raise your hand. Now, I knew the answer to that question. I knew that man was not born basically good. I'd been raised in a Christian home. I had been taught uh, from the very get-go that we are, uh, are born with this sin nature, that we are born in opposition to God. But the question I had to answer was whether or not I was ready to raise my hand up in front of all of my peers in that class and make my position known. You see, to be a Christian, to believe what a Christian believes, to live the way a Christian lives, to talk about things that Christians talk about, is to risk being offensive to many people. We're living in an outrage culture to boot. Meaning that people are less tolerant now than they ever have been to be challenged on anything. Not just matters of faith, but matters of opinion. It's very hard to sit across the table from someone now who does not share the same opinion on things that you do and that I do. That presents a challenge to us here this morning. I was reminded of the challenge of the Christian when I was reading a quote by a woman named Dorothy Sayers. If you don't know who Dorothy Sayers is, she's, a, she's a, an author. Um, she's not alive now, but she was an incredible uh, Christian writer. And she had a very creative way of expressing things. But on this particular issue, she said, I believe it to be a grave mistake to present Christianity as something charming, as something charming and popular with no offense in it. Now, see, when I read that, but then I also read the scriptures that say that we are to be known to others, we are to be known as Christians, not by being offensive, but, but by our love. So on the one hand, yes, I am to be loving people. On the other hand, I have a message that I believe that is an offense. So what I want to talk about this morning is, well, how can I be lovingly offensive? How can I be lovingly offensive? Because, you see, no one was able to do this better than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved people more deeply than we can ever comprehend, at the same time was not afraid to share the message of the gospel. This morning, we're going to look at his art, his way of being lovingly offensive to a group of antagonistic Jews that decided they were going to come after him. We'll be looking at John chapter 5 this morning, John chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 16 through 29. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 5, verses 16 through 29. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own, but the will of him who sent me. He may be seated. We're continuing on through the book of John. Where Jesus is presented in the highest truth that John can present him as a living hope. I heard a conversation this past week that whereas anxiety is the anticipation of terror, hope is the anticipation of joy. And that's where our Savior intends us to live, in the anticipation of joy. So this morning, we're seeing Christ answering the antagonists. We've already seen him approach another Pharisee who came to him by the name of Nicodemus, a skeptic. We've seen Christ deal with an outcast, a woman by a well. We've seen Christ deal with a man laying by a pool, a paralytic in despair. But now he's answering this new group. They're antagonists. As we saw there this morning, they're seeking to kill Jesus. So how will Jesus present this message to them? Walking through narratives like what we have in the gospel gives us a chance to look at the example of Christ, to see how he approached these all-important matters that we approach today. So this morning I want to look at these lovingly offensive actions of Christ. We'll see how to be lovingly offensive in five paces or five steps, as it were, as we look at Christ going through this passage, talking to these people who were dead set against him, and then using that as an example of how to stand up for what we believe in in a culture that's increasingly hostile towards Christianity. So we have this transition that happens between the healing of the man uh, that was by the pool that we saw last week, and then what we're reading about here this morning. Last week we saw a man in despair, but these Jews, they heard about what had happened. They saw the man who was healed. They were introduced to Jesus. And instead of, the irony here is instead of being astounded by the miracle that took place, they see this as a work that happened on the Sabbath. And now they're going to take Jesus to task. They're going to question him. When John wrote this particular gospel, he knew it was going to be put in the hands of people who would be on trial for what they believed. And sure enough, this is how we see Jesus. He's being on trial. But what happens is the belief in it of itself is not necessarily what's offensive, but it's when that belief starts working itself out into action. It's now that we have a problem. People are doing what they believe, and they're living it out. Persecution was going to begin, and this is what we see happening to Jesus And we see what's going to cost him just to speak that which is true. And we have this very strong assertion made by Christ. He's been singled out. Uh, It says there in verse 16, it says he was doing these things again on the Sabbath. But look at the way he answers the Jews questioning him in verse 17. By the way, step one, expose your identity. That's what we're getting into here. Jesus is going to expose his identity. We see it starting in verse 17. Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now. And I am working. So this is where it gets interesting. Long long debated among these Jews was whether or not God ever worked on the Sabbath. I mean, if we read through the creation account, he took a break on the seventh day. So they had debated back and forth, well, does he really always rest on the seventh day? And they came to the conclusion was, was that he, he rested from his creative works there in the beginning. However, G- God does work. God the Father does work on the Sabbath in the sense that he keeps the universe going. There's, there's things that don't stop just because it's Sunday. So in that sense, they had concluded that he kept working. And that's why Jesus says what he says here. Well, like my Father is working, so am I. Now this would have sent alarm bells off in the minds of these men. Well, hold, hold on. You're calling the creator of the universe Daddy? Did, did we just hear that correctly? That's why John said in verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God, his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, why kill Jesus for this? It was inconceivable to these Jews that anybody would ever equate themselves with God. This was considered blasphemy. Blasphemy is when you speak of God with irreverence or with contempt. And they saw that as what Christ was doing here. They couldn't comprehend that there would be more than one God if that's what Jesus was saying. And this is really where they're introduced to the idea of God being more than one person. So now we've got this second person claiming to also be God. And again, it was only the worst villains in their mind. If you go back in the Old Testament who claimed to be God, if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 9, you see this claim made by the Pharaoh. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of, what does it say? His streams, as though the Pharaoh had created them. It says, My Nile is my own. I made it for myself. It was the villains that they were accustomed to, claiming to be God. So this brought you under God's judgment, unless, unless you were God making this claim. So Jesus makes his identity known. That's the first action here. Let me ask you a question. Have you made your identity known? If I were to go to your workplace, if I were to go to your school, if I were to talk to your family, would they understand what you believe? Or have you so tried to keep the cap on it? that there would be some question mark there. Have you exposed enough of who you are to clue people in? Or are they always just kind of confused about why you're not available on Sunday mornings? Or are you trying to hide? Because I'll tell you right now, that won't work. It does not work. You can't be ashamed of what you believe in, your faith, or to have a a lifestyle that isn't like the world around you. You see, people want to know, how do I have peace and joy? How do I find a fulfilling purpose in my life? And if we're just living like everybody else is, if we're not exposing our identity, then they will never know. We're called to be salt in the earth. And if we aren't having works that line up with what we believe, people will never know what it is that has given you the joy and peace that you have. Expose your identity. That doesn't mean you've got to put it on a t-shirt. doesn't mean it has to be on a bumper sticker. If you do those things, great. But people need to know. They need to know who you are. Jesus exposed his identity. We have to expose our identity. And then secondly, we explain the message. Explain the message. Jesus knows that this assertion of having God as his Father is going to have a lot of explaining to do. And he knows what these, these Jews and these Pharisees, he knows what they're thinking. And notice, by the way, these Pharisees, unlike the woman at the well, unlike the man at the pool, they've sought him out. They've, looked, they've sought out him. So he proceeds with a lengthy, lengthy explanation to say what he says in verse 19. He says, uh, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So immediately he's setting himself up, not as someone competing with God. He's not saying, I am a second God. Rather, he's explaining the kind of relationship the father has to the son. And Jesus described his relationship to the father. It's it's similar to that of a son in the household growing up with, with his father. That's how they would have understood this, that the son was an extension of the father in that culture. And here, okay, we have an obedient son who loves his father and is is with him, who's learning from his father, rather watching what his father does. At that time, you would have done whatever your father did, whatever trade that your dad had, that's the trade that you would have. And Jesus says, look, I am doing what my father does. I'm submissive to him. Christ received authority from his father. He obeyed his father. He executed the will of his father. And to be God, Jesus would have to do this perfectly. And then after that sentence, there's a whole series of statements, of explanation, uh, beginning with four. And we see uh, the first there at the end of verse 19. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Christ is making it clear. He's doing nothing on his own initiative. He's not working against his Father in heaven. He's doing the will of his Father. The Father has set the agenda. And perfect sonship involves perfect identity of will and action with the Father. Then he moves on with the second statement that explains the reason or or how the son does what the father does in verse 20. He says, For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Christ explains he's doing, he's performing signs to reveal himself. He's even spoken about raising the dead later on. And then he explains that in the end he'll judge. Now that would have been news, too. All these Jews thought that they would stand before the Father in judgment. But Jesus is explaining that they will stand before him on the last day. And why is that? Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So the reason for this delegation of judgment is for honor. God the Father is honoring the Son and giving Him this role as judge, that He will receive equal honor with Himself. So failure to to honor the Son is also going to be failure to honor the Father. You see, Jesus spoke this hard and this this wonderful truth. Many, Many would consider this to be unacceptable. But there's a large group of people who may profess to teach about Christ, who will not honor him in this way? And if people in certain churches believe what they're being taught in those churches, then they do not believe that Christ is God equal with the Father, as He's proclaiming Himself to be here. That's true of a number of. It's true of Muslims and Jews and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Unitarian Universalists. And if those people are believing what their churches teach, they do not believe in Christ the way He's presenting Himself here in this passage. As a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis made the statement that, that Christ is one of three things. He's either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. Which brings us to the question of why. Why is Jesus doing what he's doing? And that's our third action, because he's motivated by love. That love is the motivation. We expose our identity, we're motivated by love, By the way, these aren't necessarily always in this order. I want to call your attention again to verse 20. It says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. See, it's because the Father loves the Son, he shows him all that he does. And that's paramount to understand in this passage. Because the love of the Father and the Son, they're they're perfectly shared in purity, even though they're expressed in different ways. Even though they're equally God, they don't love each other the same way. The Father is revealing himself and showing himself to the Son. The Son is reading the Father out loud to us, almost as though the Father is a book for us to understand who he is and, and what he's doing. And the first matter of priority is to understand that, yes, God loves us. And Jesus loves us. However, it's the love they have for one another that we're getting in the middle of. It's the love that they have for one another that's motivating, or rather, this is why Christ is uh, doing what he's doing. He's loving us. However, their love is deep for one another. That's why we're getting this disclosure. Christ so loves his Father that he's going to share him with those that he loves. It's like we get to be included in this loving relationship among the members of the Trinity. And that's what, and and love is motivating for for Christ and sharing with these men who want to kill him that Jesus was doing the Father's will out of love. And this is why we engage a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christianity. We're not out to win. We're not out to gain power. This is motivated by the same love that we were shown before we ever even loved Christ. Out of love for our Savior because He first loved us. So how do we treat people who don't believe what we do? By the way, it's... It is the gospel. However, it could be a a whole number of opinions that Christians have. That people are not, I don't expect people to agree with me who don't believe what I do. Because the gospel impacts our view of everything. But we have the truth, and we know that Christ, that the cross freed us to love others in spite of how they feel about us, in the same way that Jesus loved others in spite of how they felt about him. That's the gospel difference. So what do we do? So we control our anger. We control our attitudes out of love for people. That's the gospel difference. So we're motivated to love for the sake of loving people. We share the gospel. We're not motivated to win. And I hope you can see the difference. Jesus knew what these men would do. He knew exactly what Judas was going to do. He knew their hearts and treated them as though they were without malice. If Christ is capable of treating someone without malice, how much more should we be able to treat someone without malice? Not to assume, not to be naive on our part, but not that you expect them to not act maliciously, but treating them as though they, that maybe they don't want to be malicious. And then what about this message that we have? That's number four. We can feel assured of the life-giving message. The greatest promises ever made to mankind came from the mouth of God, to give life. Listen to verses 24 through 27. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and it's now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. You see, we are spiritually dead. And what we experience when we come to Christ is becoming spiritually alive. Someday we'll be physically alive. Even those who have died in Christ will be resurrected. But what comes first spiritually will become later physical for as the father has life in himself so he has granted the son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man this is not just a statement of fact i hope you're not hearing this as just a statement of fact here this morning there's an invitation here to faith that anyone who hears this and believes this was going to have life, spiritual life now, followed by physical resurrection to come. In verse 25, Jesus continued to describe what believers will experience in the future, this resurrection. And I can remember working in sales, interestingly, right out of college didn't last long but I remember working in sales thinking how do you how do you do this how do these guys manage to do what they do every day and again and again and again they would say we believe in our what we're telling people we believe in what it is we're selling that's actually going to do what we say it's going to do we have something infinitely better that we're telling people One of my favorite moments in my previous church was getting to tell a woman she'd just lost her husband, and her husband did not include her in the will, and her stepson decided that she was going to be out of the house. She had about three weeks to figure out what she was going to do. She didn't have any money, and I got to go to her and say, you know what? The church is going to put a a down payment on this house. You picked it out. We're going to redo the inside of it. Uh, It's going to be everything you want it to be. Man, that's a fun conversation to have with somebody. How much infinitely better is it to share someone this message of Christ? That not only do you get this world, but you get the next one. Not only do you have the eternity that's coming, but you get this world thrown in. See, that's the kind of assuredness that we should have when we share Christ with someone, to accept a son now by faith and then resurrection. By the way, someday everyone's going to be resurrected. Christ made that clear at the end of this passage. You'll either have resurrection to life eternal with him, or you'll have resurrection to judgment. Christ knew full well what this message would mean for his own life, that he'll be killed for sharing it because many in power were not going to accept his testimony. So that's number five, expect persecution. Just expect it. Maybe it's not here fully now, but uh, there's no reason that it won't become more severe. Maybe it could be just by friends or family now, could be a government more and more in the future. But you're better off if you just expect. As a matter of fact, the New Testament's never written to people that were not expected to receive persecution at some point. We've enjoyed a very long time of comfort that God's given us, but I sense that might be coming to an end. Okay. It seems to have happened everywhere else. Why not here? We're not special. We're called to be persecuted and love Christ anyway. So how do I be lovingly offensive? By seeking to love, share the gospel, and not win an argument. Motivated by love, to share the gospel, and not out to win an argument. I want to close with a story about a couple that did this very, very well. Their names were Ken and Floyd. Ken was a pastor in a Presbyterian church up in uh, the Northeast, and Ken and Floyd had... Uh, met a woman, um, very unusual lady, wasn't really, uh, certainly wasn't part of their church, a woman by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. Now she was a tenured professor in a nearby uh, university, it was Syracuse. Um, She had a lesbian partner, they were both members of a Unitarian Universalist church. And Rosaria was the coordinator of what's called the Welcoming Committee of their church, the Gay and Lesbian Advocacy Group. Now, up to this point in their life, rather in Rosaria's life, she had absolutely zero love for Christians. She felt that they were all intellectually impaired. And she had a lot of hate mail she'd received from Christians. But her image was going to change when she met Ken and Floyd. And she described her encounter with these Christians. She said I remember being conscious of my butch haircut and the gay and pro choice bumper stickers on my car. She said I remember awkwardly greeting she was going to their house for dinner, they had invited her in for dinner. She was awkwardly greeting my host at the door and pulling out my out of, out of out of her bag two gifts, a bottle of good red wine and a box of strong tea. She said I wanted to get to know these people but not at the expense of compromising my moral standards. She said, my lesbian identity and culture and its values mattered to me. And she said she came to that culture through a lot of thought. She said she liked Ken and Floyd immediately because they seemed sensitive to that. She said, during the meal, I remember holding my breath and waiting to be punched in the stomach with something grossly offensive. She said, I believed at this time that God was dead and that if he ever was alive that the fact of poverty, violence, racism, sexism, homophobia, and war was proof that he didn't care about his creation. She said, I believe that religion was, as Mark said, the opiate of the masses. But Ken's God seemed alive, three-dimensional, and wise. And Ken and Floyd were anything but intellectually impaired. Then she said that the two of them did something at the meal that has a long Christian history. They invited the stranger in, not to scapegoat me, but to listen and to learn and to dialogue. We didn't debate worldview. They were willing to walk the long journey to me in Christian compassion. During the meal, she said, they didn't share the gospel with me. After our meal, they did not invite me to church. She said, because of those two glaring omissions, to the Christian script as I had come to know it when the evening ended Pastor Ken said he wanted to stay in touch she said since this beginning the journey on which the Lord has taken me has been a great adventure and this simple meal in a pastor's home was the first leg of the journey she said before I ever stepped foot in a church I spent two years meeting with Ken and Floyd on and off studying scripture in my heart Ken knew at the time I couldn't come to church it would have been too threatening too weird too much and this is a statement. She said, So Ken was willing to bring the church to me. You know, it wasn't on that first time she heard the gospel, but Ken was willing to take the long journey. He knew it would be a long road. And somebody in your life needs to be invited in. Someone needs to be exposed to your identity and who you are. They need to hear the message, maybe not right out the gate. I think God will show you when that right time is so that they can know the Christ and the peace and the hope that comes with them. Please pray with me. Almighty God, it's a joy to be in your service. And Father, I pray that we would have the courage to live out our faith right in front of a hostile world. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice for us. And we're thankful that we can celebrate in the way which we're going to be celebrating it right now. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.